We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 27 tonight. Isaiah chapter 27. It's been a real treat to get into this section of Isaiah and see so many uh, words that are intended for us today. As, as we look at another chapter tonight, we're going to see a lot of messages that are intended for us as Christians uh, and as we uh, oftentimes devote ourselves to the New Testament, it's interesting as we go back to the Old Testament, we find so much was meant for us. Uh, and those Christians in the first century really would have dwelt long and hard on a lot of passages like the ones that we're studying here in Isaiah to find comfort in knowing that uh, the, the situation they were in and the, the scenario of being in God's new kingdom. Uh, so as we open up to Isaiah 27, we see that idea continue. And the first words there you see, in that day. In that day is something that we've seen over and over again throughout Isaiah, and it's something that we will see continually throughout the prophets. There's a, a common reference to a future day when God is going to establish the, the future kingdom. And that's exactly what we're in today. So as we read in that day, oftentimes that's a reference to a situation, uh, our, our situation today. So notice here, as you start, you have a very vivid picture, okay? Uh, and this is a really interesting idea or picture to look at. It says, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. As you start out, you see some really interesting picture here. Can you just imagine a huge sea creature, Leviathan? Something we've never seen before. We've heard about it in Job and other texts, but we've never seen. We don't know what, what creature they're talking about. But you can just imagine a huge uh, you know, squid or a huge, some kind of a Loch Ness monster, some kind of an animal, dinosaur, something uh, that apparently is like a serpent and like a dragon that's in the sea uh, and it has its arms around the world just squeezing it and God is saying I'm bringing my sword to punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent that's an interesting description isn't it it kind of lets us know that this Leviathan is not just some you know creature that uh, that exists which it, it was based on other texts throughout scripture but that's not really what God's talking about he's not talking about a, a, a dragon in the sea really he's he's using that as an image as something that they would know at that time he's using it as an image to help us understand the role of the serpent the role of the dragon uh, the role of Satan and, and his work in the world has been clearly seen throughout scriptures. We saw it all the way back in the Garden of Eden as the serpent was able to deceive Eve. Notice here that the Leviathan is called the fleeing serpent. He's running for his life. If God's after him, he, he doesn't want anything to do with suffering himself. He just wants to bring suffering on other people. Calls him the twisting serpent. And that's a, a, you know, a statement to his nature that he's, he's twisting and he's, he's altering the truth. He's not speaking straightforwardly. He is, he is corrupt and, and causing corruption. He's causing chaos. He's causing all kinds of issues in the world. And here we see God saying in that day, 
God will with his hard and great and strong sword punish the serpent. Something that was prophesied back in Genesis. The descendant of Adam would crush his head. It's a very similar kind of idea in this very vivid picture that God is going to punish Leviathan. Is saying in that day, Satan's going to get what's coming to him. Now that sounds like a great thing, doesn't it? Well, that's in that day. That's in our kingdom. That's in our, our world. That is what we have in our time, that, that Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent, that Jesus has punished and is punishing the, the serpent uh, because we live currently in that day. Well, that's great because he's causing all kinds of chaos and all kinds of havoc in our lives, and God is promising that he is going to punish him for what he's done. As we deal with Satan working in the world around us and causing all kinds of headaches, and, and we might could think about him as a Leviathan creature that's just rampant in society and bringing about all kinds of sin and evil, and you kind of see a promise from God here He's going to punish him. He's not going to get away with the wickedness that he's promoting. And then it goes further. It goes from that picture to a different picture. Verse 2, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Here we have another picture, and this is a picture of a vineyard. He says, once again, we saw this in the last chapter, sing of it, you know, and here he is saying again, on that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. It's a beautiful idea, an image that God is trying to give us, that, that he is going to establish a vineyard that doesn't have any briars. Now, briars are the indication, again, of Genesis. The, the briars came up after man sinned. And, and so there's a picture of this, this vineyard is without corruption. This vineyard is without sin. And he says, oh, that, that uh, briars would come up because I would crush them immediately. He would protect his vineyard. He would not allow the sin and the results of sin to overtake his vineyard and prevent the vineyard from being fruitful. He is the keeper of the vineyard. And notice it says he keeps it night and day. He waters it every moment. And he says, I have no wrath. Now, if you've been following along in Isaiah, and you can remember back that far, it's been four months. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, there was a vineyard that was also talked about. It was a vineyard that God had taken all the time and effort to create, and he had set up the walls around it, and he had set up a lookout, and he had done all the things that are necessary to make that vineyard the greatest vineyard on the earth and to be extremely fruitful. But when he went to get his fruit from that vineyard, he got sour grapes. So he let the briars come up, and he let the animals trample it, and he let it be destroyed. Well, that judged vineyard 
is now appears to be replaced. In that day, there's going to be a vineyard that is a fruitful vineyard that will be established, a vineyard that he is going to take care of himself and provide for, and there's not going to be any more uh, briars or anything like that, and it's going to blossom, and it's going to bring forth fruit. And it says it's going to fill the whole world with fruit. That's an amazing picture, isn't it? What do you think that's about? I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, you come to the New Testament, you see Jesus talking about the vineyard and the idea of a vineyard. Vineyard is a very clear picture of the kingdom of God uh, throughout the Bible. And here we have pictured for us a new vineyard that will be established and become fruitful. He's talking about the messianic kingdom. He's talking about us. Us becoming the vineyard of God that is producing fruit. And that is, that is taken care of by God, that is provided for, that is watered every moment, that is kept night and day, that has no wrath coming against it. And all the briars and all the thorns, if they were to pop up, he would just remove them. And that's a really cool picture for us to hang on to, to understand God's tender love and care. So here we have in the first verse a picture of God going out against the great enemy of mankind, the serpent. And then we have a picture of him providing for and taking care of his people, his vineyard, and allowing them to produce plenty of fruit in the whole world. You continue and get to verse 7. It says, he has struck them as, uh, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? So notice as you start off this, that he is now referring to the people of Israel who have been struck. So we've left, we've kind of, this is a transitional verse, we've left the discussion of those pictures of the promises in that day to now saying, consider what has happened and what has taken place. Uh, has God struck those uh, whom are his people as he has struck those who have struck them? It's kind of offering a comparison Consider Israel's punishment versus Assyria's punishment versus Babylon's punishment and, and see that God has not completely wiped out and destroyed Israel. Now it's interesting, Isaiah is the one preaching this. Isaiah is writing during the time of the Assyrians invading the northern kingdom of Israel uh, well before, hundreds of years before Babylon comes in and destroys the people as well. But he's making it very clear that God has not completely eradicated his people. He is, he is still allowing them to exist. And he is still providing for them in some way, even though they are extremely wicked, as he's about to get to. Uh, he says he hasn't struck his people as he struck those wicked nations who he's used to strike his people, to hurt his people. There's a difference, and that's pointing us to God's discipline. God's discipline is measured. It's purposeful, and it's aimed at a particular idea of restoration. The first uh, six verses here, we see the picture of restoration that's coming, and now we're moving into a section that has a lot to do with God's discipline and striking his people, and he's really trying to get the point across that what he has done has not been for their destruction because he hates them, but it's been for their good. That was his intention. Measure by measure, verse 8, by exile, you contended with them, 
He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken. Like the wilderness, there, are the, there the calf grazes. There it lies down, it strips its branches. When its bows are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will have no compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. You see pictures here of God destroying his people, uh, destroying the city that was once formed. Now, it may be referring to Samaria, which was destroyed by the Assyrians uh, during Isaiah's time. Or it could be looking forward to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And he's saying that they have been destroyed, and he gives us an understanding that, uh, that they will be changed by this. Notice he says that uh, the fruit of this removal of their sin, this destruction, this discipline, is that they're going to make all the stones of the altars like chalk stones. In other words, they're going to destroy all their idols. They're going to destroy all their altars. They're going to stop all of this foolishness. And they're going to be transformed and they're going to be changed. And then he, he brings up the fact that, uh, that they, have, they were a people without discernment in verse 11. Uh, he, so he, made, he, made them, he who made them will have no compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. Uh, there's a, just a picture that God has pruned his vineyard. He has, he has allowed it to be scorched with the fire, so to speak. He's allowed it to be laid bare so that it could come up again and there could be a fruitful vineyard again. This all reminds me of many pictures throughout the Old Testament where God allows people to suffer, where God allows good people to suffer uh, so that there would be a transformation that happens inside of them. A lot of times whenever bad things happen to us in our lives, we really struggle to see the value of the bad thing when we're in the midst of it. Maybe you've got times in your life when Leviathan's been against you and he's been squeezing you so tight. Maybe you've got times in your life whenever uh, you know, everything seems to be falling apart. Your city feels desolate uh, and there's calves grazing in it and it's just this everything's a mess, everything's destroyed. And you see in this that there is a, a need for uh, renewal in our hearts and our minds. And hopefully we see after the suffering is over that there is a, tra a transition, a transformation that happens inside of us. That this is a part of the process of becoming the vineyard that's fruitful. That we must address the issues of sin in our lives. The people of Israel weren't ready to be a good vineyard yet. They weren't ready to produce good fruit because they were trusting in their idols and so God allows them to be destroyed in order to deal with their sin and their problems so that they could become what they ought to be. And it's interesting as you read through this, you see that it took destroying them to bring about the transformation. They had to have their cities destroyed for them to go in and say, okay, let's destroy all these idols. Obviously, they do nothing for us. Now, in our lives, what about us? Can we relate to any of that? 
Are we somehow holding on to certain things that are going to provide us with um, success, provide us with security, uh, provide us with hope and joy and peace and all of those kinds of things? Are we failing like they were to discern the will of God, what is good and pleasing and right? Are we failing to do what we talked about this morning? Are we failing to lay it all on the line, to be living sacrifices for God and, and offering to God our reasonable service and reasonable worship? Do we need correction? Do we need discipline? I think we all need that from time to time. We drift. We get, we get further away. And God lovingly cares for us. He prunes us. Pruning isn't easy. It hurts. Sometimes there's fire. <laughs> Sometimes it's worse than pruning, and that hurts. But his care for us remains true. He has a bigger picture in mind. And whatever's going on in our lives, he has the bigger picture in mind. Just like with Joseph, he knows what the end result is, and he allows him to go through the suffering. In some cases, Joseph suffered not because he was wicked, but because he just needed to be stronger than he was to deal with what's ahead. And we also need to go through that. And God knows. And God provides us with sufferings and trials to help us become stronger and more able to function in the kingdom. Then we come to verses 12 and 13. It says, In that day, the river Euphrates, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. In that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Here again, we have this picture of on that day. So you see, he's gone from this, you learn this lesson to get to the vineyard part. You had to learn this lesson. You had to have desolation. You had to have suffering to get to the vineyard, to get to Leviathan being punished. You had to go through that. And now he goes back and he gives us another image. And it's not really a vineyard image. It's more of a wheat harvest kind of image. And what he says is, in that day, God is going to gather his harvest from Egypt to Babylon. He uses the Euphrates River, which goes down to Babylon. He says, I'm going I'm to glean them all one by one. This is what you do. You go and you, you uh, thresh out the, the grain from the chaff, and you separate those two things, and then uh, you pull out all of, the, all of the grain. But what's interesting is he doesn't say, I'm going to thresh them and gather all of my uh, wheat into the barns, kind of like what we see in other images but he says, I'm going to glean them one by one, O people of Israel. Why does he say that? Well, that tells us his, his loving care. He's going to be concerned about each and every individual grain. And he's going to go and he's going to find them all and he's going to bring them in and take care of them. You see in that the, a picture again of his might, of his sovereignty, of his power, of his knowledge and his wisdom and his understanding. He sees and he knows where every single Israelite is that was carried off into captivity and sold into slavery and taken halfway across the world. And he says, I see them, I know them, I haven't forgotten them, and I'm going to find them and bring them back. The blow my trumpet and those who were lost, he says, in the land of Assyria 
and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt. This is all things that would happen as the northern kingdom fell. I'm going to bring them all to worship on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. You see in this, God's going to blow this trumpet and gather everybody in, and he's going to cause them all to worship him again on his holy mountain. Now, there is a sense in which all of this took place in books that we read of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's a sense in which that took place, but not to the fullest extent. Whenever we come to the New Testament, we see the Samaritans in the northern kingdom. That is a mixture of Israelites and other nations, and they don't go to Jerusalem to worship. So it doesn't really fully happen. But as we come to the New Testament and we study and we learn, there is this mountain of God that is talked about earlier also in Isaiah that is a new Jerusalem. And that has been a theme throughout Isaiah. This idea of a new city was just in the last chapter, that God's the one who is the walls of the city. God is the one who provides the protection for the people inside that city. And he's saying that he is going to gather the people from wherever they are and bring them to worship on his holy mountain. We come to the New Testament, we see that same kind of image again. You see in this again. God's desire to care for and provide for his people. So this chapter is just full of the idea that God has the power, he has the might to defeat the enemies, to to straighten out those who are crooked and messed up, and to transform them into a fruitful vineyard and bring them safely into the city. All of these different images just telling you God cares about those who are his. He cares about those who are in the kingdom. He cares about those who care about him, who love him, who are seeking him with all their heart. He's going to find them wherever they are, and he's going to make sure that they're taken care of. That's a pretty amazing image for us throughout Isaiah chapter 27. So let's apply this to ourselves. Hopefully in our lives we can see God is the one who has the power over the enemy. Over the one who has wreaked havoc in our lives. Over the one who's caused chaos. He has the ability to punish him. As you read that text again, you notice it doesn't say on that day the Lord's going to take his sword and he's going to fight against Leviathan. It's not like a dragon and a dragon slayer and the dragon slayer is getting beat up, but somehow he succeeds. No, it's God's going to punish him. Because God has the power to do that. (laughs) This is not a fight. Leviathan's running. And so as you read this and you think about Satan and the work that he's doing against us, you come to the New Testament, you see this picture over and over again. Uh, You know, stand up to him. He will flee from you. He is not going to be able to withstand the one who is for you. Romans 8, I love that text. If if he is for us, who can stand against us, you know? Satan has no ability to control us unless we give it to him. So in this text, if we want to apply this, we need to see the message to those in in the kingdom of God. Those in the messianic kingdom is God is going to punish the wicked serpent for all the work that he's doing against his people. And we need to trust that that's true today, that Satan, who is against us, cannot withstand the one who is for us. He can't bring about the the suffering for our sins like he could in Genesis. That's done away with. There's now forgiveness. 
Uh, and so we need to embrace this idea that we are a fruitful vineyard. That's who we are. That, that there's no wrath against us. That God is watering us all the time. That he's caring for us day and night. He's working in our lives to help us to grow and to flourish and to bloom and to become exactly what God has created us to be. This text tells us that we can celebrate rejuvenation. And, and we can live a life with this mission as our focus, and we can become what God has created us to be. And the gifts that he's given us, as we talked about this morning, can just find life of their own. And we can become a life-giving stream, as Jesus said in John chapter 7. As we drink of the Spirit, we overflow, and we become a life-giving stream, a well of, of that stream to other people. And that's exactly what God wants us to understand and the best thing about being in this vineyard, as you read through this, I have no wrath. <laughs> he says, I wish there were briars. I'd just crush them, you know. God is not against us. God is for us. Now, it doesn't mean that we go off sinning and doing whatever we want and don't have any concern about the wrath of God or anything like that, but it just means we don't have to worry about our sins and our mistakes and our failures anymore. We don't have to think, well, God's going to surely not forgive me. No, he has demonstrated he will forgive. He wants to forgive. He wants to help us become who we're supposed to be. And if we have the heart that seeks his glory, then he is wiping away all those sins. We don't have to carry that weight, that burden on us anymore. We can run freely and do the things that God has called us to do without worrying about all those things. And finally, we see another wonderful application in this text, that we should be people who live in anticipation of the new Jerusalem in the fullest sense. And the idea that we would enter into the, the pearly gates, so to speak, enter into the city of God, enter into the presence of God, fully experiencing all the blessings that he promises us. But as we read through this, we see that God is gathering people into that city right now. You know, that's, that's kind of the way he depicts it. And as we come into the book of Acts, you see him gleaning one by one, pulling in all those who were Israel into the city of God, into the kingdom of God in the book of Acts. And that's very much true of what we experience today. We are added into the city. We have that city. We have that protection of God. And we are a part of the new Jerusalem. We are citizens of that heavenly kingdom today, enjoying the spiritual blessings that are in there. And that means that we can burn the idols. We should burn the idols. Because the idols brought destruction, right? They brought chaos and havoc and evil and, and all kinds of suffering on us. We want to burn those. We want to get rid of those. Because we're going to the city where everyone who's there can trust that God is the one who cares for them. And we are striving, unlike the Israel that was judged, we're striving to discern God's will and to find his favor in everything that we're doing. That's our desire. That's our hope. And that's our goal. That's why we, we consider ourselves living sacrifices. That's all that we care about. That's what our life is supposed to be about. And that means that we can bring all of those heavenly values uh, of the heavenly city, we can bring all those things down to earth for others to see God's glory. And that's the way we should be thinking about our life. We're not here to conform to the world. 
We're here to show the world what it looks like to conform to the heavenly kingdom, to the heavenly Jerusalem. We're here to show the world what it looks like to be the pure, to be the righteous, to be the sanctified, to be the fruitful vineyard where there's no briars. We're here to help others understand the greatness of our God and to demonstrate his wisdom and his ability and his power to transform the hearts of some stubborn and wicked people. (laughs) That's what we're here for. And so we need to be open to the transformation that God has asked us to, to make a part of our lives so that others can see his glory. And we need to invite others in to see for themselves, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to feel the security and the satisfaction of being in the kingdom of God and experiencing the joy of being a citizen and a child of our Heavenly Father. And I love that picture. I just want to reiterate it, that God wants to gather each and every one who's humble. God is not a God who just generically grabs a bunch of people. God is a God who knows intimately every single person who is humble and who is seeking sincerely. And he is willing to gather them and bring them in. And he uses us to accomplish that. And so if you are one who is humble and seeking, then he wants you to come in and he knows you by name and he cares about you and he's working in your life to bring you to the point of repentance and submission. And if you are one who's already accepted it, then understand that he has a purpose for you to help help those who are out there to come in. He knows them by name and he's put you in their life to reach them and bring them in. So if that's you, if you've not yet received the grace of God, we want to encourage you to do that. Uh, Maybe everybody here has. Uh, If if that's not you, if you've uh, received the grace of God before, just know God loves you. God saw you. God has worked to bring you to where you are. He drew you into himself, and he is working to transform you and help you become a fruitful vineyard that brings glory to his name. And so make that the purpose of your life. Uh, I love this chapter. I hope you've enjoyed it too as we've studied it together. How relevant is Isaiah to us today? So relevant. We get such great uh, information from these chapters about our messianic kingdom. Uh, If anybody here today needs to submit their life to Christ uh, and there's anything that we can do to help you with that, will you please let us know? Please come as we stand. As we stand.